0: It's the new year, new you, same ad account setup. We're bringing on Silvio Perez to Dgu today to talk through how he audits ad accounts to make sure that you're set up for success in 2023. Personally, I'm really excited about this because he's going to school me. The Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. All right, Silvio. So I didn't tell you I was going to say this, but again, it's my podcast, so I can do whatever I want. The idea for this episode I thought was a good idea. But then I was thinking, you're a big gym guy, like new year, new you. We're going to try and put this on a spin for ad account. So I'm pretty excited.
1: You got to go, just like you go to the gym, you got to go to your ad account and put in the work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's some serious work. And I think when I was doing some episode prep for this, there are a bunch of different ways that you can audit ad accounts. And I think for me, when I was looking at how others are doing this, I left a little disappointed because it was so surface level and it didn't really get into the details. So I know you eat, sleep, breathe, whatever you want to call it, ads. So you know it probably better than anyone. And I think you're going to bring a different perspective that a lot of people just don't have because they don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to, by the way, fun, fun fact, when we were brainstorming titles internally on metadata for me, when I shifted into product, I was joking with Gil, our CEO, and I was like, just call me ad man. <laughs> my title. Oh my God. You should have went with that. I did it, I did it
0: <laughs> That's amazing. So I think just to jump into it, because this is a pretty meaty topic. So when we were coming up with the outline for the episode, I think there were some easy sections to, or more logical sections to make sure that we talked through. But you added one that I'm very, very happy that you added. And it's something that a lot of people skip and it's starting with strategy and goals. A lot of people will just jump immediately into the work, the execution, the auditing, whatever, and just get lost in it, but they're never really grounding themselves against the strategy and the goals. So when you're talking with metadata customers and other demand gen marketers, what are you talking about with them to make sure that they're grounding everything that they're doing with their ads against their strategy and goals?
1: Yeah, it's it's key. Number one, I could get into quality score optimization and super in the weeds for certain channels and things like that, but none of that is relevant if you don't first start with your strategy, right? Your goal, your plan. Do you have the same goals now moving into 2023? Do you have the same budget? Do you have the same targets? All of that is going to predicate whether or not your existing out account structure supports that new goal, that new initiative, or if you need to change everything because it doesn't anymore. So that's where you have to start. So something I'm seeing come up more often is people moving from a lead gen based approach and i want to say this is for all the people on linkedin who are always going in a debate between lead gen and demand gen and i'm not going to try to rant because i know we got a lot of talk about no because i won't I say, allow it i'm so tired of those posts but keep going <laughs> when i say lead gen i mean content lead gen specifically i'm driving ebooks to try to create opportunities and pipeline a lot of people are moving from content lead gen to more of this, you know, we'll call it new age demand creation approach where they're ungating their content. They're pushing that content in feed. They're trying to drive consumption, educate their market, get them to know, like, and trust them so that they can start to capture that demand. With that shift, if you're someone that traditionally has been doing content lead gen, well, your existing account structure, all of it has to change because your entire strategy changed. So absolutely, that's the first place you want to start. Love that.
0: Now, once you iron out the big picture conversation and make sure that everyone's on the same page, I think one of the other areas where people have either learned the hard way or they haven't learned this yet and they're about to learn the hard way very soon here is reporting and dashboards and just making sure that based on the goals that we have and the KPIs that we have and what we want to measure, that we are in fact able to measure it. And I've learned that the hard way before because I thought that we were able to measure what we said we were going to measure, only to find out three months later at the end of Q1 that, you know what, we actually could measure what we said that we were going to measure. So walk me through your thought process and and how you make sure that you're set up for success from a measurement perspective. I call this
1: assessing the damage. And the time for flying blind is over, especially in a down economy. I hate to even say that this should be a step, like this should be table stakes, but it's not. So it's worth you would would think but it's not it's absolutely not first you have to do an audit on your current reporting and dashboards do you have the visibility that you need at the highest level for a marketing team that's blended inbound performance this is like a one view that i I truly believe every marketing team should have blended inbound performance, performance meaning how many hand raisers are you getting every month how many opportunities are being created, what's the cost per opportunity, all of those opportunities, how many closing to revenue. That overall view that just shows you as a marketing team, doesn't matter if you're paid or you're organic or you're social, however you build your team structure, as a team, us working together, all of our goals ultimately are to increase the performance of that blended view because that means us as a team, we're successful. And this is even more important if you are making that shift from content lead gen to demand creation because you're not gonna have that direct attribution. So take an honest look at your systems. Are you missing these key reports? Are you missing these key dashboards? If it takes you six Salesforce reports and 30 minutes to answer basic questions, like what's my cost per opportunity, <laughs> that's, a, that's an issue. So make sure you have that at the highest level. And then from there, based on your channel mix, you might also wanna consider taking it a step further and setting up a channel specific view where you can see your performance by channel. So I spent this much on Google. This is what we were able to directly attribute. Same thing for LinkedIn, same thing for Facebook or whatever other channel you might be using.
0: So just for the record, I was shaking my head, not because I was shaking my head at you, but because it was bringing up PTSD of staring at Salesforce dashboards that had a bunch of stuff on there, but none of it actually meant anything. And I was staring at whatever the max limit of reports is on a Salesforce dashboard. It was like, hey, here's 12 cards. I'm like, What does this actually mean? So I think one of the things that I did when I was working in marketing ops was making sure that whenever we were creating reports and dashboards and Salesforce, making it really, really clear in the title of that report, what the question is that this report will help answer so that you know what you are looking at, not, hey, here's 12 different reports and yes, it's showing me something, but I don't really know what it's showing me and just hitting people over the head with that clarity. 100% yeah
1: I mean we're all guilty of it I think and this is like one of the things that unfortunately you learn through experience aka messing up yeah I'll I'll
0: speak for myself
1: (laughs) (laughs) unless you had somebody that could have guided you along the way but unfortunately for most of us that isn't the case so we just learn as we go
0: alrighty so let's start nerding out here and you're gonna school me on a lot of this stuff so The way that we're going to break it down is we're going to look at how your ad accounts are structured as one area. The next area is going to be the tracking setup that you have in place. The third, we'll get tactical on how to review audiences, targeting, and placements. And then the last thing that we're going to cover is just reviewing ad creative. So we'll start here first, talking ad account structure. I've got a bunch of questions for you, but what do you do when you look at a new Ads account, whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, Google Ads, or any other channel that people are trying to use in 2023?
1: Yeah, there are nuances across platforms, of course, but I would say at the highest level with your ad account structure is making sure that you're thinking through your organization. So, how are you going to group your campaigns for your different initiatives? So, for example, with LinkedIn, that would be campaign groups. How are you going to name your different campaign groups? Are you going to allocate them by region? Are you going to allocate them by, by objective? Are you going to allocate them by account list? Are you going to allocate them by a combination of those things? So really think through going back to your strategy. What are you trying to do? If the goal is ABM and you're 100% ABM focused and you have certain accounts that you're trying to penetrate, maybe consider having one group dedicated towards penetrating those accounts through demand creation, and then you can have another group through capture. Uh, the way I like to do it personally, and there is no right or wrong, but it's just what's works for me, is I do what I call the five stages. So the five stages is create, capture, accelerate, revive, and expand. And I use those as my buckets to then organize all of my campaign initiatives underneath. So for example, that could be for, I could have a campaign group in LinkedIn that's all about demand creation. And then underneath that, I have all of my campaigns that are promoting content, to try to get in front of, whether it's accounts or personas or both, to to facilitate that. On the search side, you don't have things like campaign groups, so the way you can stay organized and help create that structure is through labels. So you can create different labels for your different campaigns to be able to create that organization. This is also super helpful too because if you've ever used Excel, and if you're a search person, like a paid... Hold on.
0: on a B two B marketing podcast, you should never have to caveat something with if you've ever used Excel.
1: Okay. Well, if you ever used Excel for a paid search, you okay. Know now we're now we're the caveat's yeah. fine for okay. like pivot tables are your life. If you're like an OG advertiser, you know about pivot tables, and having those labels is so helpful because it allows you to basically pivot table everything and summarize all the data just to make it really easy to understand that. Now, of course, if you use something like Data Studio or literally any other type of reporting tool, those labels really make everything else easier to group things, right? So you can understand, hey, all of my brand campaigns are performing at this, all of my competitive campaigns, so on and so forth. So think through the structure of your account. Really think through it. Don't overthink it. You could always adjust it over time, but just have some sort of rhyme and reason behind it, some sort of logic. At the very minimum, what I recommend is you just break things out by region and offer. So you could have one group that's like North America content, could be content for any different type of objective, but it's your content group. You can have another group just for, let's say, more demo requests, like direct response type offers, high intent. And then you can go from there. And I think that's a really simple place to start. So One comment to make just from my own experience of having been on both sides
0: of what I'm about to say before, before I ask a follow-up question. So it is so nice when marketing teams and the agencies that they work with have a defined naming convention for how they set up their ad accounts. Because if you have multiple hands in there and whoever the, the primary, you know, ad manager is for your particular team is out or is busy or something. And you can go right into that ad account and know exactly what you're looking at and how to get to what you need. It is so much easier. And I know it's one of those things that's not very exciting. It's boring. It's not very sexy. It is so, so needed as you scale your ad accounts. And there's more than one set
1: of hands in there. It's necessary. And By first starting off and understanding the overall account structure and how you're going to organize that, that also informs your campaign naming conventions. Because within that campaign group, now you can have those subset of campaigns that have their own convention, but it ties to the primary group. So this is getting nerdy, but when you go to your campaigns tab and you're not filtering by groups, you can just search and it makes it really easy to find the campaigns you're looking for. And of course, it also just makes it really easy for other people who are in the account as well to find what they need, even if they didn't set that campaign up.
0: Exactly. So next question for you on the same part. So where, and maybe it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's three, like what are some of the biggest things that you typically see that people mess up or overthink or forget about when setting up their their ad accounts and how they structure them?
1: Conversion tracking.
0: Perfect. That was actually the next section. So let's go right into it then. So let's talk about it. Yeah. And I know that I've wasted, I don't want to say the exact number, but some decent money at a previous company from not having conversion tracking and the GCLID situation all figured out. So let's nerd out over conversion
1: tracking and I'll probably ask some dumb questions. I just, I'm like laughing about it because it's crazy how many people still mess this up. You know, it's, It doesn't seem like it's getting better, if I'm being honest. The amount of accounts that I go into and the tracking, it's just fundamental stuff. So bare minimum, okay, conversion tracking, what are we talking about? We're talking about setting up conversion events in the ad platforms so that you can measure the performance of your campaigns. So for example, if you are promoting a demo request, did somebody actually fill out your form? And that can send a conversion signal back into the channel. It knows how to optimize. That's very important, especially now where AI and ML is becoming the default and it's better than manual bidding. I remember a couple of years ago on Google specifically, I would never want to do anything but manual because maximize conversions would just overspend. It was terrible. Fast forward to today, automated bidding is outperforming manual as a starter, like as by default. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And, and even nerding out on the Google side, Starting off with maximized clicks, an automated bid strategy. I'm a
0: nerd. You're a nerd.
1: Like you don't have to caveat like shirting out (laughs) every single day. (laughs) Max clicks on Google is an automated bid strategy, right? And that is already better than you starting with manual setting bid caps and then increasing over time. So essentially, these machines are really efficient. So feeding it high quality conversion data is extremely important. So it knows how to optimize and improve. This is. This is table stakes. At the very minimum, people should set up their conversion tracking through their pixels. So you want to make sure you install your pixel on your website. You start to capture as many people, build up your retargeting audiences as soon as possible. But you also set up those conversion events so you can start to measure activity. I would say that's like baseline if you do nothing else. Mm -hmm. If you want to take it a step further. Let's take it a step further. Let's do it. If it's not client-side tracking, which is done through the pixel, do server-side tracking where you do things through the API. That's even more accurate. So this is where you can do, for example, you can integrate Salesforce to your Google Ads account. And when a lead that was converted from Google is in your CRM and that lead now becomes an MQL, we can send an event from Salesforce back into Google that that lead became an MQL. Google now knows that conversion happened. So they understand that an MQL is more valuable than a lead and then that can inform their bidding algorithm. You can do this same thing as well now on LinkedIn. LinkedIn recently opened up their offline conversions, which is super exciting. So you can do the same thing on LinkedIn. You can do it through the Facebook conversion API. A lot of these platforms are supporting these APIs, and that's also their way of helping with the the privacy regulations and iOS 14 on Facebook specifically to kind of help improve tracking and giving the channels the data that they need. Because a lot of people don't realize that ever since iOS 14 was released, The channels are starved for data. So with iOS 14 specifically, if a user opts out of the ATT prompt, the app tracking prompt, meaning when you you download an app and it's like, can we track your activity across devices, et cetera, If you opt out of that, a lot of people are, if a conversion happens and Facebook knows it happened, but that person opted out, it can't register that conversion on the channel. So you're already at a deficit. You're already at a deficit. So that means by default, you will not be able to capture 100% of your conversions just based on privacy regulations. So let's say you have 60%. But if you are tracking based on the pixel, now maybe your potential is like 45, 50. I'm being dramatic. But if you can track server side, well, maybe now you have 55, 60. And also the quality of those conversion inputs are much higher. And they're a lot more dependable because you're only sending that server event when you're able to associate it with that lead based on the click id so it's a lot more accurate versus when you're doing it based on the pixel everything is based on either a last touch or a view through window so facebook will default usually to like uh one click or seven seven day click one day view through etc so it's just there's a lot more room for error so that's another thing too that i see people mess up on outside of setting up the conversion tracking is they're only making their decisions, which goes back to the previous step on the conversions that they see in the channel. And if they don't have those reports, they don't have that dashboard, they won't be able to keep the channel honest. So you mentioned a couple of things that I
0: want to dig into a little bit more. One general question, and this is unplanned, but we'll have to do a separate episode about this. So everyone's been talking about GA4 and you have, I know you have experience with GA4 right now. Is this any easier for Companies that are already using GA4 like out of the box, like I, talk to me like I'm a second grader. <laughs>
1: no, not really. No. So GA4 is they're more robust as a tool compared to Universal Analytics on the data side. So they there's this component on GA4 called data streams. So with GA4 now you can connect your web based properties but also your apps. So you can connect different data streams, which is really cool. But on the server side. You can, it's nothing, I mean, you can, there's ways, but it's super technical. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like a plug and play solution. So I yep. think this is where if you don't have a developer resource, like using third party tools, yep, it's really important to be able to enable these things for you. But there are a lot of tools out there. You just go to Google and you search offline conversion tracking. There's a lot of tools out there that try to help you out of the box with this. But this is also something that you can set up mm. yourself. Like for me and my newsletter, mm. I ha- yep. I have the most basic email automation software ever. It's called Aweber. And mm. I just picked it because it was the cheapest thing. <laughs> that was literally it. And I'm telling you, see, hold on, this
0: is a podcast run by a marketing technology company. And here's somebody saying you don't need the most expensive piece of tech. Like you just need the basics and you need to execute the basics before you go buy the Ferrari. So keep going.
1: Yeah, it's. You leverage the tools you have and make the best of it. Like I have Aweber, and if aweber's listening, I'm sorry, but your tool is basic. Like I will give you feedback. You can't even report on like basic things, like how many of my email opt-ins came in from Google versus Facebook. They don't have that. It's awful, but it's a great tool if you're just starting out and you're a beginner. You know, and, and I'm grateful for it because when I got that tool, it's like years ago. I had no money. So fast forward to today, I've pimped Aweber out completely. <laughs> so. I've kind of pushed the tool to its like max potential. So if I was able to set up offline conversion tracking with AWeber, you can do it with Salesforce or HubSpot does it for you automatically. So if you use HubSpot, that's a huge advantage. They're able to push events into into the ad channels. So if you have HubSpot, this is already taken care for you. But essentially, just to quickly outline the process, it's really important to just understand Number one, why you're doing it. So what I had just touched upon. And then from there, as far as the execution piece, what you have to do is essentially you have to capture the click ID from the channel. So you have to set up a hidden field on your form. You also have to set up some JavaScript on your website to be able to capture it and push it into your field. But essentially when that person comes from Google or they come from Facebook or they come from LinkedIn, and then they have the UTMs in the URL and the click ID that's unique from the ad when they click on it, and they convert on your form, that person will come through to your system, your CRM, in my case, Aweber, and it'll show Mark Huber came from LinkedIn, and then I'll have your click ID from the ad and the campaign that you came from. And then from there, I will then go and integrate into the channel. If they have a direct conversion, you can do it through a direct conversion. If they don't, you might have to use something like Zapier, and then you push that event signal back into the channel.
0: I've learned so much. Uh, you said it heard out. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, that's exactly why I wanted you to school me on this topic. It's unbelievable. So one of the other things that I want to talk through on this, there's two more things before we can jump over to the next part of this, is, and again, without spending the rest of the episode on it, is everyone's least favorite word in marketing or one of their least favorite words, attribution. So. We could do a series on attribution or not because I hate this topic, but what are some of the basic things that people should be auditing just around their attribution before they start spending more money and trying to get more out of the dollars that they do have in 2023?
1: Yeah. First thing they should audit is they should look at everyone on their team and ask, hey guys, did we agree upon how we define attribution and the models that are going to mean the most to us? So that way there's not one person in each role, favoring the attribution model that will make them look like they're the best at their job. I think that's the... If there's one thing you should do, it's do that. Because then from there, everything else is table stakes. Do you use first touch? Do you use last touch? Do you use time decay? Yep. It doesn't really matter. It's what is, what is the answer you're looking for, right? And then I would if I have to add in another point on attribution is know that it's not perfect It was never, it's not possible to be perfect. There's just too much. Like the web is very fragmented with browsers and just the way it was set up legacy wise. So just understand you're never gonna have a complete picture. And if you analysis paralysis, you put too much into it to the point of inaction, it actually starts to hurt you. So just take a step back, agree as a team. This is why again, going back to step one and then two, like having that blended view. And if you're listening to this and you're a marketing leader, and you haven't set up that blended view and you're rallying your team to truly be a team and how can we improve overall performance together, That this is going to really help you break those silos in your team. And then that way people, especially like paid, paid ads people, they a lot of them are reluctant to do demand creation at first because they're not going to get that last touch anymore and it drives them nuts. And then a lot of the other folks who are just used to tracking based on the pixel only, they don't want to go server side because their conversion count is going to go way down because now it's tracking based on actual activity created. So it's going to make them look bad. This is especially true when you work with agencies and consultants and freelancers. They're not going to tell you to do this stuff. If it was up to them, they would just keep everything as is because you're going to go to your Google dashboard and you're going to see that you have 500 conversions and you think you're crushing it, but then you're not hitting your pipeline targets, right? And it's not actually making a difference.
0: I've been in so many of those meetings working with agencies where they have a readout for you with the status that shows that they are just absolutely crushing it with all these conversions. And then you're looking on your side in Salesforce or whatever CRM you're using, and it's a completely different story. So, yeah, I've unfortunately watched that movie
1: a couple of times before. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is those conversion counts on the channels aren't just last touch. It's also view through often, and it's a combination of the two. So it's even worse because. Yeah. It's Google saying that this click, of this ad generated a click that eventually converted on your site outside of the last touch and then some of them were last touch and then people just take that aggregate total and then they're like, hey, we drove this many leads if that's what you're tracking and the reality is like, it's a ghost town. (laughs) It's just nothing going on, which is the worst thing and that's why I always say like, so assess the damage people, face reality because you can't keep buying (laughs) in the climate, you know?
0: One last thing before we move to the next part, and feel free to go as deep on this as you need to, UTM tracking. I think UTMs, again, are one of those things that some people are very good about using UTMs and having a consistent structure for how they use them. Anything that you'd recommend people check out with how they use UTMs before
1: they kick off the new year? I think you should totally check out Google's Dev Tools. They have this little cool tool that you can use to just build out UTMs really easy on links. I use it all the time. It's like a key bookmark of mine. It's a bookmark on my browser right now. Yes. <laughs> and I highly recommend you guys get in the habit of just bookmarking that. And every time you have a link that you want to track, get in the habit of putting a UTM behind it, but before taking a step on that is at the highest level on your team, just agree upon your UTM conventions. So how do you label UTM source? How do you label UTM medium? And then as far as campaigns, if it's something more sophisticated where it needs to route into Salesforce, agree upon those UTM values so that way the routing works. So if a lead comes through, it gets into the proper campaign and you get that credit. But make sure you set up those conventions. And there's, if you go to Google and you just search like UTM convention calculator, there's a whole bunch of free templates out there where people have already created these Google sheets. And then you can just put in your values and then you just paste in a link and it'll spit out the tagged version.
0: Yeah, I think the key to all of that, and you kind of mentioned it, is if there are multiple people on your team who are going to be using uh, links with UTMs is just to have that upfront conversation so that everyone knows the correct structure to use. Because I've also learned this lesson before where you've got a couple different hands and that you never had that conversation with the agency about UTMs and everyone is using UTMs at the end of the day, but you're all using them differently. And then the channel groupings are all screwed up in GA. So I've done that before, too.
1: Yeah. Every, every analyst ever, that's like their PTSD. They go into the source medium report and it's just six fragments of the same source of traffic. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's not cool. All right. So I'm most excited about this next section of the episode, which is audiences. And we could probably and should probably do a episode on this and just really, really go into detail. But what are you looking at when you start to check out audiences in new ad accounts? And I've got a ton
1: of follow-up questions for you. Before I even check the audiences, the first thing I do with clients that I've worked with is I say, are you happy with your lead quality? Love that. That's the first place I start. Before I even look at a single audience or keyword, if it's search. And depending on that answer, I'll have a a little bit of a different expectation of what I'm going to see (laughs) when I go in. And also too, it's not just are you happy with your lead quality, but again, going back to your strategy, are you still trying to get in front of the same person? So making sure that you're getting very clear on those personas that you're going after. And then from there, it's you can pivot towards going into the actual account and looking at and reviewing different things.
0: So once you get into the account then, and you've had those conversations up front with the marketing team, the agency, and hopefully the sales team too, because I think they are a big time stakeholder in this equation. What are you looking for when you're checking out audiences? How do you know this is a good audience? How do you know it's a bad audience? Yeah, so
1: I'll break it into two parts with social and then I'll go and search. So when it comes to social, let's say we'll use LinkedIn as an example. Go inside, open up the campaigns. I'll look at the historical campaigns that ran in the past and then I'll look into the audiences. And I'll, I'm looking for a couple of things. So number one is I'm looking at the LinkedIn audience insight tool that's available when you're building an audience. And I just want to get a like a readout of what is LinkedIn saying this audience is comprised of. LinkedIn has a new tool called audience insights, which is also available outside of when you're building an audience and it can give you a lot more rich demographic information on the audiences that you're building. So you can essentially preview the audience before you actually deploy against it, which is really cool. But in this case, I would look at the audiences that already ran, and then I would look for how does the breakout match according to what my client told me in terms of the personas they're going after. So what job titles are they using? If they are using job title targeting, what functions, what seniorities? Are they using exclusion audiences? That's a huge one. Who are they not excluding? Are they excluding competitors, employees? Are they excluding, the, if it's a lead gen campaign, are they excluding people who took the action? That, that they're promoting, you would be surprised how many people miss that. And they're still showing the same ad to the people that already download your ebook, signed up for your demo, insert offer. That's a That's a big one. And also, are they excluding existing customers? How, you know, close one opportunities. So just doing an audit of, are we getting our ad only visible to the people that matter in relation to who they're trying to target? And then I'll also look for opportunities as well. What are they not doing on the targeting side? So for example, if a client has only been targeting based on job titles, I'll start to think to myself, well, maybe there's an opportunity here to leverage something like job function, seniority, and specific member skills to be able to widen our scope a little bit and reach people who could be a great fit, but we just didn't get their job title. And people are changing their job titles all the time, so it's very likely that you're missing out on reaching potential people that are good fit. So one follow up question on the social side of the house. So I feel like I see this come
0: up all the time on LinkedIn and the echo chamber that we <laughs> know and love and hate sometimes, audience sizes. Mm-hmm. So what give us your take on audience sizes? I know there's a million different ways that you can skin this, but you know, people are always asking, what's the right audience size? And there's no right audience size, but what are the things that they should be thinking of before they figure out, yeah, this is a good audience size or not? I
1: would say first start with your perfect audience. So sometimes people will get caught up with the size count too early. I can give you some specific. Is that people asking these questions on LinkedIn or the people who get caught up exactly what I just said? Yes. So first, what I always recommend is just build your perfect audience. Like absent of thinking of size, like what does that look like? Oh, they have these certain job titles. They work for these types of companies. Start there. And then once you build that audience, you'll see in the preview tool, same thing with Facebook, you'll see in the preview tool, it'll give you an estimate on your audience size. So let's say you build that perfect audience and it's less than the minimum of 300 on LinkedIn, well, then it's it's not gonna happen. So then you can start to take a step back. Okay, from that perfect audience that I created, what is one layer that I can peel away to be able to increase my reach but maintain the maximum quality? And then you just kind of work backwards from there And then eventually, you'll have a good enough size where you can get a decent amount of spend behind it, but also volume. And now in terms of the specific recommendations, what I try to aim for is 50,000 to 250,000 is kind of like the range that I try to operate in. If it's anything more than 250,000, there's usually an opportunity to get more granular, more specific. If it's less than 50,000, Doesn't mean don't use it again, like these are just recommendations. Like I've had campaigns where I only have an audience size of 10K, but it's like the best 10,000 people ever, and it's so worth going after them. But the reason I like to say 50K is because if I do 10K, I'm gonna hit a scaling wall really, really fast in terms of the budget that I can deploy against it. So for me personally, and just my appetite, and usually with the types of clients that I'm working with, they wanna scale really quickly, I'm thinking, how can I increase my audience size where I can deploy significant budget behind this and not get tapped out really, really fast? So I could go that route. Uh, and this kind of goes back to your strategy. If I don't have a lot of budget and I need to take the sniper approach and make sure that every ad is literally perfect in front of the person I'm getting in front of and I want the highest return on my investment, I'm going to try to go as granular as I can. You know what I mean? So I'm going to try to have that audience size as, as low. But as quality as possible, you know? And then vice versa, if I'm in the middle where hey, I do have room to be a little bit wasteful. And I don't really say wasteful, but like learn, because it's only wasteful if you're not learning from your (laughs) experimentation, (laughs) then then I would be in that mid-range, right? Uh one of the things that, and not to go off on a tangent, but like when I used to be in B2C, we would operate in the audience sizes of millions. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not to say that a million person audience is a bad thing or a good thing. Again, it goes back to start with your highest quality audience and work backwards. The people on the B2C side are working in the millions because there really is that many people that are a perfect fit that are, you know, who could buy their product. So just, I would say, have that mentality. And then I can go into the search side too. Yep, yeah, let's do search. So with search, it's the same thing, but the difference is Instead of audiences, it's keywords and audiences. So you have these two components. So the first thing is with search, you need to look at your monthly search volume. So that is going to tell you how many people are actually searching for your keyword every single month. So if you have, again, going back to, I need to drive the greatest return of investment in the shortest time, and I cannot afford to waste a single dollar, you're gonna wanna focus on as close to perfect keywords, high intent keywords, and you're gonna wanna use exact match types. So you only show up on the top of Google when somebody is searching exactly that keyword or like very, very similar to it. And what very, very similar to it is getting looser by the day as Google is trying to push people towards broad match. The other thing at your disposal with search specifically is the ability to use audiences. So you can layer audiences as a targeted audience or as an observational audience. A targeted audience means I only wanna show up if somebody searches this keyword and they are this person, meaning, and there's different audience segments you can use, so for example, they are a person who is interested in glasses, you know, as a small example. I thought of that because your glasses. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> and then The other one is, okay, maybe you're not ready to commit fully, to making that condition, then you can, what you can just do is you layer an observational audience and you can just see how people who fall into that audience, how do they perform for that keyword? And if you see performance is good over time, then you can pull the trigger and decide to do an exclusive statement. A lot of folks that use metadata, what they've been doing is with customer lists as well, you can also upload customer lists. So if you have the name and emails in your database, you can upload this first-party data into Google and you can leverage that as well to help improve your targeting for your search campaigns. So what's the match rate
0: on that like when you're uploading lists into Google Ads? Is it higher than I think? Is it lower than I think? I don't know what you're thinking, but if I had to guess, it's probably let's, lower. Let's okay. So in my head, I was thinking like, I don't know, somewhere
1: in the 30, 40% range. Yeah, that's fair. It, I hate always saying like match rate totals because mm. I've seen on the back end and like it yeah. varies. But yeah, it's lower than LinkedIn mm-hmm. and probably lower than Facebook too. So it's like on the bottom. And the reason why is because Google can only match that first party data to Google accounts. So meaning All right, Gmail, so this is
0: the answer that I was looking for. So give it to me.
1: Yeah, so Gmails and then and G Suite. So business emails created through Google. That's why it has a much lower match got rate it. which is tougher, okay. yeah. Good to know. So yeah, you got Outlook, you know, you're <laughs> you're going to be SOL on, on Google Match.
0: Yeah. Um any other
1: things on search before we jump into uh the last part on ad creative? Yeah, so the other thing you want to look at as well is and I would say this is the most important thing to look at when you're when I'm doing an audit of a client's account is their search terms report. So from their business, their persona, looking at the keywords that they actually want to get in front of, look at your search terms report because this tells you what did people actually search when they went to Google and they clicked your ad. So your keyword is what you bid on, but you ultimately pay for the search term because that's what somebody actually searched and then when they clicked because you're charged on a per-click basis. So take a look at that search terms report and you want it to be as close to perfect as possible. Meaning, if I'm trying to get in front of people who are searching for account-based marketing software and I go through that search terms report and I see things like ABM definition or you know, student certificate for ABM, I'm like, that's not somebody who's ready to buy an ABM software. So those are negative keywords that you wanna create, which is a good segue into negative keywords. Do they have negative keywords? Are they using negative keyword lists? Those are all things that are going to again help improve the quality side of Google, which ultimately is that search terms report. And you would be surprised, Mark, how many people think they're spending majority of their budget getting in front of those high intent searches. And reality is, it's like banana slippers and just the most random things. It's if you actually want to. This is a side note. If you want like a reality check of your customer, because oftentimes we we hold our customer in our mind as like this genius, you know what I mean? And this super intelligent being, and not to say that they're not, but when you go to actually see like internet behavior and how when people are online, it's like you can be a really smart person, but when you're in that zombie mode of you're just going to Google, you're searching, everything is like subconscious. You see an ad, you click it, but you're in that research mode. Same thing too when when you're on LinkedIn and you're just scrolling through, right? You might be a very high IQ, high IQ person, But when you're in that state of mind, you're in a very low state of intellect because you're just kind of on an autopilot. And a lot of people forget that when you're creating your ads, that's the person you're speaking to in that moment of time, not when they're the best version of themselves because they've checked out. And, you know, we have to do that, right? We can't be always on, right? We're we're humans, but it's a good reminder. So when the reason I brought that up is because when you check that search terms report, (laughs) You're going to see things that are going to blow your mind of like typos, like obvious typos, like people are too lazy to write the whole word. So they just put f- a fraction of the word, like things like this, or you. I can't even explain it all. Like you will be mind blown. And like everybody who's listening to this, who's managed search campaigns right now, is probably like, yeah, yup, you know, knows you what's know. Up. <laughs> yes.
0: yeah. Like I remember some of the, when I was at Fast Radius, the paid search agency that I was using, some of them. Some of the terms that would show up in that report were so far out of left field that had nothing to do with what we were really selling at the end of the day. Some were funny, some were inappropriate. There's just so much stuff that you're spending money on that you don't really realize unless you're maniacal about that report and what should
1: be on there and what should not be on there. For everyone listening, pro tip this one thing alone, if you do this, will save you a ton of money in 2023 if you're not doing it. And go into your Google ads account or your Microsoft ads account, wherever you're running paid search and schedule an automated search terms report to go to you in your email inbox. Depending on your level of trust and the results you're currently having with search, that might need to be daily or that might need to be weekly or it might need to be monthly. You know, you can use your discretion based on your results and your level of trust with your partner, but that will put that report in your mind every single day or every other day or whatever your cadence is so you can see what's going on and then you can hold your agency accountable you can hold whoever accountable and not in a negative way but just it is what it is like you're you're seeing these search terms now if it's a brand new google ads account just tapering expectations it's not going to be perfect at first especially if you're trying to scale and you're going from exact match to phrase and then broad you're going to go through that period it's normal but as long as it's you see that you're proactively looking at that and it's getting better over time if you improve the quality of your search terms and you're getting in front of the right person then from there you've checked that box and now it's time to focus on improving your landing page and then the further steps within your actual life cycle into closing that deal love that pro tip so last part of this ad creative and again there's a
0: whole bunch of things that we could probably talk through here but when you are looking at ad creative, what are you looking for when you audit this? I think now more than ever, creative is so important. It's always been important, but it's that much more important to stop people to get their attention, to you know, educate them, get them to take yeah. some action, whatever it may be. A lot of companies are just mailing in the ad creative right now and people aren't gonna react to those ads in 2023. So where do you get started?
1: I've been thinking about this really deeply. And I feel like we could have a whole other, because like of another- course you, Of course you have admin, but yes, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so, to, so to answer your question, and another thing too, like a lot of folks are like, you have to create a pattern interrupt, but what does that actually mean? And kind of mapping out how to create pattern interrupts. I've been segmenting these things based on what I've seen, but at the very highest level, where do, when I'm looking at a client's ad account, I'm looking at their ads, what am I looking for? The first thing I'm looking for is the concepts. I'm trying to see what type of concepts of ads have they been running. So give you a real example. I actually just spoke to a client yesterday at Metadata, and they, before I got on the call, they were saying, "Hey, we're not having a lot of success with our ad performance. What can we do? Can you help us?" And that's where they involved me. And the first thing I looked at was their concepts. And I noticed for that account, all they were running was these like illustration-based concepts. So it was like, headline. CTA, and then some sort of illustration on the right-hand side, or maybe on the left-hand side, different colors, different illustrations, but that's one concept in my mind. You're running illustrations only. The other thing I'm looking at is for social, the dimensions of the ads. What dimensions are you running? Are you running 1200 by 627? So let's talk about this because I think myself
0: included forever, everyone had very specific dimensions in mind of like,
1: you must use these and the dimensions are changing of what's performing well. So. Uh, school of. So 1200 by 627 is that legacy one that you're talking about. It's like a horizontal one. But over, I want to say it's probably been like a year now. I think that's when I first talked about it. 1200 by 1200 is like the new hot standard format. And it basically makes it more like a square and it's just longer and it takes up more space. That has become just a default best practice that I've seen so much across the board that now I'm just like, I will never use 1,200 by 627. 1,200 by 1,200 just always performs better from what I see generally. So that's what I'll look at too. So with that client, they were just running illustrations and they were just doing 1,200 by 627. So one easy recommendation right there was take all of your top performing images, ads that are working right now with 1,200 by 627, focus on the top ones only and make them the 1,200, 1,200 variations and test and see what works. And then... Over time, you can start to phase out the 1,200 by 627 and then keep the 1,200 by 1,200 based on the performance.
0: And there's Love another that. one
1: too, Mark. I don't know if you've heard of it. Let's hear it. Vertical image ads is something that's another one that's coming up. And this is a type of image ad format just for mobile devices. And the vertical image ad is crushing it right now. It's insanely long, the, how much space it takes up on the page. For those of you, when you, if you want to try this out, the vertical image ad, it's going to look weird if you preview the ad on your desktop device. It's going to look cut off. But if you go and open up the preview link on your mobile device, it should look proper for you. And then you can see what it looks like in its entirety. And this vertical image ad type is doing really, really well. This is more of a micro-optimization you can do because you're tapping into that existing inventory and it's only on mobile devices. But if you have an offer that's working really well for you right now with that 1200 by 1200, try it with the mobile, the vertical image ad dimension and see how it performs for you.
0: I love that. And I think that's something that we're actually using right now in some of our own campaigns. at MetaData. Yeah, it's actually like um, driving
1: some of the lowest CPLs we've ever seen. So it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. And I'm seeing that happen across a lot of different accounts at metadata for clients. So that's come coming up as another great best practice. But yeah, outside of the concept, then from there, the dimensions, and that's kind of diving into the concept as well. Then I would like to look at the copy. So this is my, I can't
0: wait to hear what you say about this, because this is one of my like most passionate parts of just running ads, because so often it is the last thing that is thrown together before a campaign is launched. And then whether it's a customer or just other B2B marketers wonder, well, why didn't it perform well? Well, you just threw the ad copy together at the last second and you weren't intentional about it. So school me on this. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, it's like two lines. You know, it's very basic. It's third person. They're not speaking to a specific person. It's vague company speak. It's, there's no clear pain point that you're addressing. There's no real benefit. I think a lot of folks forget that you have to sell the click. One of, my, one of my favorite things that I heard a while back is, just because something's free doesn't mean you don't have to sell it. Just because you're giving away a free article, just because you're giving away a free ebook, a free webinar, a free whatever, doesn't mean you don't have to put the intention in to sell that thing. And you have to always take that into consideration when you write your copy, but also when you design your concepts. I think a lot of marketers, they overvalue the assets that they're giving away and they undervalue the amount of effort and attention is required to sell that thing so that the people have the same perception of their asset to be wanting to, to consume it. I didn't say anything because I didn't want to screw
0: up the social clip because we're going to cut that <laughs> and use that. That was perfect. That was, you couldn't really say it any better. And I think one of the things that I do whenever it's, it applies to really everything that we're doing from a marketing perspective. But when I was running our own ads, when I first started at metadata, it's a really simple gut check. It's all right, I've got the ads, I've got the copy. Here's what it looks like. Would I respond to this? Would I click on this? Would I be interested in this? And it's just taking a couple seconds to pause and asking yourself that question and being honest with yourself. There were times where, yes, i get all this stuff together. I'd be ready to launch it. I'd look at it and I'd ask myself that question. I'd say, you know what? No, I wouldn't click on this. And then you go back to the drawing board. So it sounds so simple, but it's something that a lot of people don't do. Yeah. There's a really cool tool
1: called Hemingway app that I love. I love that app. Yes. People like it. basically grades your reading level of your, of anything, of anything you put in there. So in this case, if you put in your ad copy, it'll grade it. And you want to have that grade as low as possible, ideally a third grader level, to interpret the understanding of your ads. You really want to simplify things as much as you can. I know even if you're spelling to a technical audience, still try to dumb things down as much as you can. Some words, and also caveat, because people always take everything to the extreme. It doesn't mean if you have a grade of six on Hemingway, it doesn't mean the ad won't do well. Just use this as a reference and really dumb down the language as much as you can, because that's going to be huge. And then I don't, I'm really like one thing, Mark, I'm holding it back so much because I don't want to go on a rant that I'm seeing across the board is it's very, especially on LinkedIn, it's very easy to say, all these ads are bad. They're not specific. They don't talk to a pain point. Nobody, you know, all these things that you see on LinkedIn. But one thing that I'm seeing creep up even more outside of just bad ads is safe ads. And all right, let's unpack this. What do you mean by that? It's the people who are, following the best practices maybe they listen to managing you they're doing 1200 by 1200 their copy isn't like ridiculously powerful but it's also not terrible they've got a value prop they're introducing their company they're speaking to a persona so they're checking most of the boxes but their ad doesn't evoke any emotion it doesn't break the norm it doesn't really draw that attention And I think a lot of people, if you're listening to this, you might be into this bucket where your ads are very safe. And if you're going to break the norm, you have to take a chance. You have to do things. You have to stand for things. And you have to present that in a way that is uncomfortable. Because if it's uncomfortable, you're going to elicit a reaction. And I'm not saying to do anything ridiculous in terms of brand guidelines and things like that. But I'm saying push yourself creatively And going back to what you said, Mark, be honest with yourselves. Would this get somebody to stop, right? And try to say as much as you can with as few words. This is something that I learned from Emmanuel Cohen, the VP of marketing at Walnut. They do an awesome job at their ads. And he's always trying to say as much as he can with as few words possible. And I think that's like a huge takeaway and trying to systematically break the norm. Your copy in B2B specifically is important but it's not as important as the concept and the creative itself. And if you can create an ad, and I'll have to think, just think of like best practices of social media, like babies, cats, dogs, food, like all these things that people react to natively, take those same best practices and apply it in a paid environment and try to systematically break that pattern of ropes.
0: I love that. And I think on the copywriting front, it's something that, that we do and I know I try to do all the time, it's whenever you finish whatever you're writing, go look at it and be really, really critical of how many of these words are unnecessary. How many words can I actually remove? How many times am I saying something in two or three or four words that I could actually say in one or two words and just trying to get really clear and concise. And when I first started doing this probably a year or so ago, it's hard. It forces you to think it's uncomfortable. It's like, wait a second, I thought I already wrote this well. And then you're kind of critiquing your own writing. It gets easier the more that you do it, but it's something that we always try to do, just like clarity wins over
1: everything. Writing is one of the most important skills as a marketer. by i everything you do is words. When even video is words, when you write that script, it you have to understand how to write. I think one thing that's helped me personally a lot become a better writer is posting on LinkedIn, truthfully. Posting on LinkedIn. I would not we, could not agree more. For anyone who says
0: that they're not a good writer right now or thinks that they need to get better, start writing on LinkedIn and start publishing. I'll let you go
1: from there. Yes. Yeah. Start publishing your thoughts online. If it's not LinkedIn, it's a blog. I like LinkedIn because you get immediate feedback and that's important. If it's a blog, depending on your blog, you might not get immediate feedback right away. But something like LinkedIn or like Twitter, immediate feedback so you can know if how you wrote that. It, it resonated if it's getting liked, if it's getting views if it's getting comments the topic the hook how did you structure the hook the formatting of the message that's equally important to not just what you say how you write the words but how do you present it and that's another big miss that people don't think about is they all in their ads it's just text they have no emojis there's no personality there's no life to to the message so how you format the message as well could be a huge advantage i feel like you and i could do a Three-hour podcast on <laughs> just ads. <laughs> I think you just gave me a new
0: content series idea because maybe it's the admin. <laughs> I'll chime in with a few dumb thoughts and an occasional good one. Tag but me no.
1: admin on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Silvio, this was
0: awesome. We were a little over time, but I was learning and I was enjoying the conversation, so I let us keep going. But as always, I love whenever you come on Demand Gen U. I appreciate it. And for everybody listening, this is a long one, but this is probably one of the more tactical episodes that we've recorded in quite some time. So. There is a ton of gold in here, and I'm ex- very excited to see the reaction that this gets once you publish it. Thanks for having me. We'll see everybody next week on Demand Gen U. Thanks.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Demand Gen U. If you want to hear more, make sure to subscribe to get future episodes. You can also submit a specific topic you want us to talk about by DMing us on LinkedIn. If you like the show or want to share feedback, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep improving and get the word out to other marketers just like you. This podcast is brought to you by Metadata, the first demand generation platform that launches paid campaigns that self-optimize to revenue. If you're looking for a tool that makes it easier for you to build audiences, launch paid campaigns, and experiment at scale, you'll love Metadata. B2B marketers at Zoom, Okta, and ThoughtSpot use metadata to automate the time-consuming parts of running paid campaigns so they can focus on the things that matter.